Welcome to my podcast, The Rise of the Ageless uh, Starman. With us today, I'm excited to host uh, Scott, Dr. Scott Scher. It will be my first time in English, so <laughs> I'm a little bit excited, but uh, it's a big uh, breakthrough for me. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm happy to be here, and I love the name of your podcast. Thank Did you. you- You had described that for your listeners, what brought you to the name Ageless Starman, because I love it. Yeah, I did, I did a, a little article about it in LinkedIn. Uh, I think David Boy was uh, very creative. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and uh, for the research of uh, longevity, <laughs> we need uh, this attribute that uh, Ziggy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's perfect. And yeah. that's what actually uh, piqued my interest when you sent me a message was the <laughs> of those words. Because if anybody uh, had asked me to do a podcast that uh, told me their podcast was Ageless, Star, Ageless Starman, I probably would say yes without even having to ask any more questions. Okay. So happy to be here and happy to help you out. As you get going so yeah what would you like to talk about I'm I'm here in uh, the Bay Area in San Francisco it's a sunny day so always exciting thank you it's a good sign <laughs> um, I want to ask you about your uh, your job as a hyperbaric expert mm. so I'm an internal medicine physician here in Northern California. I'm also an integrative physician. So integrative just means that I combine Western ideas of medicine or allopathic medicine, along with ideas of alternative care, which could be anything from Eastern medicine to Chinese medicine, which is obviously Eastern, to alternative ideas of what health can mean. And some of it's not so off the wall, just not what we would call standard of care in the Western model. And it was within that framework that I found myself into hyperbaric medicine when I was in medical school and learning about actually trauma and trauma care. And there was a large hyperbaric facility in the basement that was treating some trauma, uh, carbon monoxide poisoning, necrotizing fasciitis, which is flesh-eating bacteria. And I learned that the physiology was just so simple. It was just a combination of increased atmospheric oxygen that we breathe. Typically, we breathe 21% oxygen in the sea level air around us, a little bit more oxygen if you're at the Dead Sea, for example. And we also just increase the amount of atmospheric pressure. So that means that we're at, we're at sea level, we have a basically normal sea level pressure, and then we increase that by going underwater or going to deeper depths underneath the ground, and that's going to increase atmospheric pressure. And the easiest way to think about that is when water is above you when you're swimming or if you're scuba diving, all that water is extremely heavy and that water actually exerts a pressure on you. So it's just a combination of oxygen and increased pressure that 
combined increase the amount of oxygen in circulation and have a catalysmic or have a very significant uh, impact on your physiology in a number of ways. And so I got more involved in understanding how hyperbaric medicine could be a good window into a world that combined integrative medicine ideas, ideas of conventional care and ideas of alternative care because there was a significant amount of research being done in the US and also around the world, especially in Israel actually, mm -hmm. where we were looking at a lot of these physiologic, these pathophysiologic states, these conditions like strokes and traumatic brain injuries, uh, even autistic spectrum disorder, uh, cerebral palsy, reflex sympathetic dystrophy, even the dementias uh, like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's related dementia, and actually some significant data to support their use, especially in a integrative model where you're doing more than just hyperbaric therapy for these patients. And that's really where I got excited that I could combine a lot of the work that I had done in the hospital with a lot of work that was being done outside of the standard of care, but with a lot of good research to back it up. So hyperbaric medicine became my, uh, my focus as a result of, of, of just my learnings of what was going on in the field and then wanting to do something that really combined uh, the best of what I thought was allopathic and an alternative care into a beautiful niche therapy called hyperbaric oxygen therapy uh, where we're just synergizing and accelerating wound healing at its, at its core. So, like... Do you go for one specification when you say, I want a master in a hyperbaric treatment? Or it's, it's wide for someone who just wants to, mm -hmm. to enter the field? Uh, there's a lot of different ways to get into hyperbaric medicine, and a lot of it depends on your country. And because some countries have very specific programs for hyperbaric training, others don't. Uh, there are lots of societies around the world. There's one in Israel, there's one in Europe, there's one in the United States that sort of is a governing body of how you are able to practice hyperbaric medicine. And typically you have to do a residency or a, a training in one of the, the, the more general fields, whether it be internal medicine, emergency medicine, uh, family medicine. And then from there, go into uh, a training directly into hyperbaric medicine if you want to do a fellowship in it. Uh, but there's a couple other tracks. I know the Israelis are setting up their own track, I believe. Uh, there's other tracks that are involved in America as well in the U.S. So uh, for many hyperbaric physicians, their focus isn't just hyperbaric medicine. Usually it's wound care or emergency medicine, or they have their own internal medicine practice, or they treat obesity and diabetes. Lots of different options. Uh, for me, it was doing internal medicine and then I still practice internal medicine. I, I practice a health-focused uh, spin on functional medicine called health optimization medicine. And I practice hyperbaric medicine as well. So it's, I have a combination practice that mostly focuses on health and performance and optimization and looking at ways to become the ageless star man, as you <laughs> described. Uh, but I also treat patients that are really sick as well and sort of the spectrum uh, is is wide. I well, I have a question because from what I know, the, the risk is very low and the research is very hands-on. So, so why? Uh, how 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 many? 
hyperbaric devices do you estimate are in the US today? Mm, there's different types of devices. And I think that's important too. There's basically three different types of hyperbaric chambers. There's chambers that treat multiple people at the same time called multi-place chambers. And there are chambers that treat one person at the same time called monoplace chambers. The monoplace chambers come in two flavors. They come in hard shell and they come in soft shell, the soft bag type chambers. So the, the medical grade chambers, the hospital-based chambers are either the multi-place chambers or the monoplace that are the hard shell. The hard shell allows them to be pressurized up to about three ATA, which is the equivalent of 66 feet of seawater. Don't ask me to convert that to meters. I don't know, <laughs> um, but 20 meters-ish, I guess. Um, but um, anyway, um, sorry about the calculation. <laughs> um, but anyway, so the hard shell chambers, either the multi-place or the monoplace, though those typically go to three ATA or greater depths. The soft bag chambers, the milder chambers, they only go to 1.3 ATA, which is about 23 to 25 feet of seawater equivalent. And those are found in people's homes. A lot of athletes are using them. A lot of high performers are using them in various ways and probably not ways that are really medically proven at all. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, there might be some indication to use them uh, for the people that are well and that are just sort of looking for some um, mild optimization in various ways. But for the most part, um, you have hard-shelled monoplace chambers and multi-place. If you had to put a number on the amount or the, uh, the number of chambers in the U.S., you're probably looking at less than a thousand chambers overall. Okay. And, um, and they're actually declining in the number, especially in hospitals, uh, for a lot of reasons. But uh, unfortunately, hyperbaric medicine does not get the press or what it's due like in other countries, a.k.a. Israel, which has had a lot of great press because they've done a lot of great work and they're doing a lot of great research on what hyperbaric therapy can do and how it can really be a part of an optimization plan and a reverse aging plan, as Dr. Shai Afradi likes to say, mm -hmm. and his, his group in, um, in uh, outside of Tel Aviv, uh, Asaf Harafei, I believe, uh, hospital. So um, I think that would be the answer to your question. Um, as far as the soft chambers, which are not going into that calculation, you probably have about, uh, it's hard to say, but it probably like about three to 5,000 in circulation in the U.S. at any mm -hmm. one time. So, so a significant more, uh, a significant number more of those. Yeah. So uh, the reason I asked it because it's uh, <clears throat> if it's uh, if the research is so easy to to make and there's not a lot of uh, risk, why not? Why why aren't we going that way? Well, I would agree with you that the risks are very low going into a chamber. I often say that going into a hyperbaric chamber is less risky than taking a Tylenol and probably even less risky than taking an Advil or a Leave or a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. The challenge with the research though, unfortunately, is that it is expensive to get people through treatment. Typically treatment is not one or two treatments. You're talking about 40 uh, treatments, 30 to 60 treatments on average, probably about 30-ish for most indications. And so each treatment costs a significant amount of money, uh, potentially. So for a, a run of 30 treatments or 40 treatments, 
in San Francisco where I live, it's going to cost the client or the patient, if it's not covered by insurance, somewhere around $12,000 US. So uh, a significant amount of money. And so if you have 20 people going through it, you can do the math, right? It's not a small amount of money that's required to really get a lot of people through their hyperbaric protocol. Um, so as a result of that, the studies are typically small. And the other issue is the placebo controls in hyperbaric environments is very difficult because you have to have a placebo that approximates treatment in every way except for the actual therapeutics, which is the oxygen, right? And the pressure too. Uh, that's the challenge is that most of the studies that have been done that haven't showed any significant improvements, especially with brains, uh, when we're talking about the brains, have been because of placebo controls or sham control designs that are not truly shams and are definitely not placebos. So the major issue we have, uh, the major issues we have are two. One is the expense of it to get a lot of people through. And the second is the, the controversy around the placebo or sham control in a hyperbaric study. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned Alzheimer. Can you tell us a little bit of, from your experience? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I think the key really to say prior to getting in, into any specific condition is to understand what's going on in the chamber. We talked about how the oxygen is getting infused in the body to a much larger degree than you can do at sea level or even with breathing a face mask of oxygen. The reason why that happens is because when you pressurize a blood vessel and you add, add increased oxygen in the, the air that you're breathing, more of that oxygen actually diffuses into the plasma or the liquid of your blood to a much more significant degree than it is at sea level. It's that liquid blood, oxygen, that allows oxygen to diffuse further into tissues, okay? And what happens when that occurs is that you have about four different things that are happening at the end process. The first thing that happens is that you decrease inflammation. So that's inflammation everywhere, whether it be your brain and decreasing neuroinflammation or decreasing inflammation in your toe and decreasing toe inflammation. Same deal, same process physiologically, happening in a lot of different ways, uh, with a lot of different uh, factors being released as a result. So what you're looking at there is, number one, decreasing inflammation. The second thing that's happening is that you're increasing the amount of oxygen in circulation, so you're reversing hypoxia. And you're doing that by just oxygenating the tissue. And that's extremely important, right? So if you have an injury where you have a blood vessel that's injured, and after that blood vessel, so let's say that blood vessel's, blood vessel's injured here, um, and then you downstream of that blood vessel, that blood vessel is not getting oxygen and nutrients to the tissue because it's damaged. Downstream of that blockage, you are going to get that tissue deteriorating or dying. So what hyperbaric therapy can do is help oxygenate that tissue and prevent it from dying. Yeah. in the short term. And in the long term, it can create, create new blood vessels in that tissue to help it regenerate and stay vital. So we have decreased inflammation, reverse hypoxia. The third thing that it does is it, it releases, stimulates the release of stem cells from the brain, brain stem cells, along with bone-derived stem cells that can make new tissue in the area that was injured or inflamed. And the fourth thing that it can do is it can kill infections, fight bugs. And so as a result of that, you're revitalizing and regenerating tissue. Okay, so 
take it the next step, which is how can it help in various conditions? It can help because the baseline physiology of what's happening is what I've described. So in somebody that has Alzheimer's disease, for example, you can decrease neuroinflammation. You can help regenerate blood vessels in the brain. You can help uh, stem cells release to help regenerate tissue as a result of that. So recreating scaffolding, you know, the scaffolding of a building, right? That all the structure that you need to help keep that tissue vital and, or revitalize it is actually stimulated to be, to be formed and to develop because of being in a hyperbaric environment. Now, that's not to say that hyperbaric therapy is a treatment directly for Alzheimer's in it of itself, because Alzheimer's is a very multifaceted condition, likely has five or six different etiologies or reasons why it develops, and has to be addressed from the root of it, the root causes, uh, and understanding the pathophysiology of what is causing it is extremely important, because you can get into a chamber, you can feel better, you can actually get new blood vessels, all the stuff that we talked about it. But if you don't address some of the underlying reasons why that developed in the first place, then very, very likely it's going to be a temporary uh, relief for that patient, mm -hmm. unless they're really trying to understand what's underlying all of this. Okay. Thank That's So if I understand it correctly, we can stay in good shape with Alzheimer's but it's not a cure we can it can help yeah yeah but it's not going to be a cure for sure it's yeah. going to be something that can mitigate symptoms and potentially regenerate some brain tissue but the key really is understanding the foundation of health which is how are the cells working how is the gut doing is it healthy is it unhealthy is it toxic are you eating foods that you're sensitive to are your hormones all out of whack and and that's work that, that I do in a practice called health optimization medicine that doesn't focus on disease. It focuses on the health of the body. Uh, but there are functional medicine doctors out there or other doctors that are really focused on Alzheimer's. The most prominent one that I often refer to is a guy named Dr. Dale Bresiden or Bresiden. I always forget how to say his last name. Uh, but Dale is a, is a researcher and he's come up with a, a protocol specifically to approach Alzheimer's from a nutritional, behavioral, uh, mm. supplement perspective, laboratory analysis perspective, and then building from there. So I often work with providers like Dale that are working on that ground level in the setting of somebody who's looking to really uh, benefit from hyperbaric therapy over the long term. Nice. So can you explain a little bit if, like, what you said on Alzheimer, it reflects on, on Parkinson too? So the way hyperbaric therapy typically works uh, best is within an integrative model and a model that really does require uh, some groundwork and not just getting into a chamber. There's very few conditions out there where hyperbaric therapy is going to be the only therapy to you know, quote unquote cure you. Uh, the, and the, those really fall into the category of acute traumas or acute insults to the body where hyperbaric therapy can truly just help the body heal itself faster. And that's acute concussions potentially, acute trauma to limbs or organs, or even acute traumas that are done by doctors like surgeries, for example. But in the chronic setting, uh, these chronic conditions, very likely hyperbaric therapy will not be the only 
therapy that'll be needed to see complete reversal or the complete uh, stop of progression of some of these conditions. It can be a helpful adjunct, but it's not going to be its own in and of itself. Again, uh, the therapy that's going to be enough, most likely, to really help these patients in the long term. Mm -hmm. And in stroke is the same as Alzheimer's? Well, um, yes, um, although with stroke, we often see that hyperbaric therapy, even by itself, can be very, very helpful. And the Israelis have done this, this research along with some research that's coming out of China, I believe. So yes, significant improvements just by going into the chamber. Uh, but the better outcomes are people that get in there faster versus those that wait longer. Yeah. And even better is if you start a change in behavior, change in lifestyle, dietary changes, some supplements, et cetera, that focus on you know, that individual and personalize their care and their, their regimens. Okay. Um, I wish it was as simple as taking a pill or just getting into the chamber, but most of the time it ain't, unfortunately. Well, it's not that complicated either. <laughs> like, well, yeah. Compared but it's, to a lot of medical uh, procedure, doesn't sound... Getting into a chamber is easy. I 100% yeah. agree with you there. Um, I often say that the easiest thing that they can do is get into a chamber because all they have to do is relax, they can watch a movie, and maybe they can talk to their friends if it's a multi-place <laughs> chamber. But that's the easiest part. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The hard part is sustaining a long-term strategy to really improve and maintain and optimize your health and yeah. become that ageless star man that you refer to. <laughs> yeah. Because and otherwise, I mean, yeah, hyperbaric therapy will help a little bit. But, you know, if, if you really uh, want to see huge gains and huge potential, it's going to take more than that most of the time. Yeah. And more than one treatment. Like you need to, it's a long process. Yeah, so the other thing to mention is that the way hyperbaric therapy works is actually in two buckets. The first bucket is the acute exposure to oxygen bucket, which is relatively small. You can decrease inflammation, reverse hypoxia for a short period of time. You can prevent tissue from dying, which is important, prevent reperfusion injury, which is really important, which is in trauma, for example. Mm -hmm. You can kill bugs. That's all the initial acute exposure. Okay, um, but the long-term improvements that you see in a chamber are because of the epigenetic phenomenon that are occurring, which means that how oxygen is affecting how our DNA is expressing and suppressing genes to produce proteins, to produce metabolites, to produce how our cells and how our body is functioning. Okay, and that's what's happening over the long-term in a cumulative process that occurs over multiple treatments in the chamber. For acute conditions for acute injuries, you're talking maybe three or maybe 10 hyperbaric sessions done in succession. But for more long-term conditions that have been ongoing for more than a few weeks, sometimes a few months, depending on it, you're looking at 30 to 40 treatments, maybe sometimes as many as 60 in a row with the weekends off. So two months, three months even of treatment to see the gains that, are, that you have potential of seeing. So, what, well, you spoke before about uh, how expensive is it. I think, uh, I think uh, one, like one uh, direction we can go is that the investment will come from the sport, sport leagues, like NFL, uh, where there are a lot mm -hmm. of... Uh, 
Alzheimer diseases for 30 years old people who played in the NFL. Yeah, well, they don't have Alzheimer's, right? They have something a little bit different. They have something called uh, CTE, right? Uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is related to chronic uh, concussions. Uh, we do think hyperbaric therapy can help with those patients, uh, with those NFL uh, players, especially if it's treated early. Uh, but very likely, like I was mentioning, it's not just about hyperbaric therapy. It's about a lifestyle behavior plan that really can help these, these people, these, these guys over the long term. Uh, the biggest sponsors of our funding are typically uh, patients or patients' families that have a significant amount of income. So, for example, the Seagal Center for Hyperbaric Medicine is, is funded by uh, Sammy Seagal, um, who's very, very prominent in Israel, has a lot of interest, and has had uh, experience uh, that has, or he's heard of experience at the very least. I'm not sure exactly how close it is to him about people's improvements and decided to fund the Seagal Center, right? And we have uh, others around the world that are in similar uh, frames, but uh, the Seagal family has been very generous with their, uh, with their uh, funding and their support in Israel, which is extremely important, obviously, uh, to get some of the research done that's needed, given the, the amount of money that's required. So we have a couple uh, smaller uh, people that help over here in the U.S., uh, some foundations, et cetera. But in general, because of how hyperbaric therapy is, is, is a niche therapy, it's not known by everybody. Mm -hmm. The best way we've seen to get funding is through individuals that either become evangelists or that their families become uh, supporters. Yeah. yeah. Um, like Sami Segal, what I read about him, that his parents had uh, Alzheimer's. This is why... He decided to invest so much, so much in it, and of course, uh, it's it's a uh, it's a good idea, and he's investing a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. He's doing a lot of research and to to concentrate a lot of uh, professional in the field of the brain, not mm -hmm. not only hyperbaric. It's uh, important. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's a um, again. It's not just hyperbarics, but I think it, I mean hyperbaric therapy is a massive accelerator and synergizer, and really does help the body heal itself, uh, which which is great and a really really an important part of I believe the healing process for brains, for bodies, uh, for optimization in general. I, like, uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, sports star, stars that are uh, mm -hmm. using it? Yes. Yeah. So most athletes are using it uh, f for about three different indications. The first one would be recovery. So recovering from uh, from regular sort of day-to-day -day training along with recovery from injury. Uh, so that's the first way it's being used. The second way it's being used is to uh, protect the brain you know, as, as far as from concussions mm -hmm. um, or sort of uh, treating concussions if, if it does happen. And the third way is more for sort of for cognitive optimization, which is for, or even systemic optimization. So helping with endurance, helping with brain function. Uh, we know from the Israelis that the, the brain revascularizes after hyperbaric therapy. Uh, the, the heart does as well. There's also some indications that 
there's improvements in sexual health with, with new blood vessels in the genital regions as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, we know that the athletes are you know, using hyperbaric therapy for those categories. And if you're an endurance athlete, you can get more blood vessels around the heart. So you can get more blood to the heart under stress that can be very helpful for races and things like that. You'll hear some common uh, tabloids and magazines and newspapers talk about uh, NFL players or other players sleeping in chambers. Uh, those are not, I don't really recommend that <laughs> in general. Those are the chambers that are for, for home use. Um, it's not something that I think is a good idea. Typically the exposure in the chamber should be between one and two hours max um, and, not, and not much more than that. Someone needs to, to be with them, no? Can they well, sleep? They have these soft, if they have these soft chambers, uh, people will sometimes use them without any supervision, and I don't think it's a good idea uh, to be sleeping in them overnight you know, by yourself. Yeah. I don't think it's a good idea at all. But it's, it's happening, and I counsel against it. Uh, the hard chambers, the, the ones you find at medical facilities, you can't have without supervision. So you'd have a, a technician or <clears throat> a physician, somebody else that, that can help. Yeah. Okay. So well, one, one reason why I'm doing the podcast is like to show new students the possibility of uh, going in this, this kind of a career. Mm -hmm. What programs do you know are, uh, exist today so they can take this path? Well, I think it's a fantastic field, number one. I think that there's a lot that's happening and it's going to change in the next five to 10 years. It's already been changing since I've started. Uh, there's a lot of potential great work you can do on the research side and on the clinical side, depending on your flavor of, of preference. Mine is on the clinical side. And I have a lot of gratitude for those doing the bench work with animals and also the, uh, the other work that's being done even pre-animals uh, on the physiology of what we do. Uh, so I think there's a lot of potential in the field, I think that you're gonna see a lot of changes, a lot more indications, a lot more press, a lot more public interest in it. And I, and I think there's a lot of really great work that we can do with patients that have been told that there's nothing else that we can do for them. And I, a good example of that would be a patient with stroke, for example. And we say, you know what, if you don't get better in 90 days, you're done, there's nothing else we can do. Or a patient with a concussion uh, that has symptoms three months or even a year later that says that you know, medicine can't do anything for you or doctors can't, but then you get into a chamber and all of a sudden your headaches go away or you can think better, you can go back to work. So it's a lot of gratifying, a lot of gratifying stories. In fact, I heard a story yesterday of a, of a, uh, a young child about, I think he was a nine or 10 years old who had a regular dental procedure but had a reaction, an anaphylactic reaction to the anesthesia and ended up having a, a respiratory arrest, basically lost all vital signs, uh, was brought back, but was had an, what's called an anoxic brain injury in Mexico City. And, um, and in Mexico, they have a lot of great work that they're doing in hyperbaric medicine. They got him into a chamber uh, three days later after you're stabilized and the kid's walking around fine after being almost completely paralyzed and quadriplegic when he first came out of the, uh, the respiratory arrest. So we're seeing amazing stories like that. And I think that you're gonna see more and more of that uh, over the next several years. Now, as far as training programs go uh, for hyperbaric medicine, a lot of it depends on your country. So like I was mentioning before, 
um, you have to do a medical residency to become a hyperbaric provider. Um, mm -hmm. You could probably go directly into research into hyperbaric medicine, do PhD uh, without being a medical doctor if you want. Uh, I don't know exactly how that works, but um, to be a, a clinician, you have to do a, a training in, in, in medicine first. And that can be really any, any, really, any field, really, but the, the general fields of general surgery, emergency medicine, family medicine, um, internal medicine like me, uh, even pediatrics would probably be uh, something that would be reasonable. Um, but you, you would have to start there most likely. And then a lot of it depends, like I said, on your country. I know that the, the Israelis have different ways of doing things like the, uh, as compared to the Americans. And, and then there's various training programs that are ongoing for technicians, for safety directors, for nurses, uh, for PAs, physician's assistants, nurse practitioners. So there's lots of different ways to get into hyperbaric medicine depending on where you're coming from. Uh, but uh, I would just encourage you know, a simple search of your local area or your country and then kind of figuring out who to talk to or some of the hospitals that may be able to help you understand the best training uh, that could help or like a facility that's in your area, you can call and, and talk about the training that they did and, and get some, a sense of it from there. Okay. Uh, so thank you, Scott. It was very info informative. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, is there another, anything else you want to share to the world that maybe I didn't ask you, but you are the expert, so. We are always careful with those words like experts. You know, we're always learning here. Um, yeah. I, I think that um, what I would say is that I think hyperbaric th therapy is a fantastic field. I think that there's a lot of potential and a, and a huge future, a bright future for it. I don't think that it will be at its potential, however, if we just consider the chamber as being the end-all be-all for our patients. I think it's most important to look at this in perspective. As I was alluding to, I have another practice called Health Optimization Medicine, or HOME for short, yeah. and that practice focuses on a foundational approach to health. Because I truly believe that if you really want to cultivate and harness the power of our cells to produce energy and have epigenetic changes, you need to have all the vitamins and minerals and cofactors and be uh, assessed for toxins and other subtle deficiencies that can build up over time that can really make our cells work at uh, suboptimal capacity. So over the years of working in hyperbaric medicine, I've realized that I handicap my patients. I, I don't allow them to really reach their maximum potential if I don't at least attempt to address some of these subtle deficiencies and toxicities at the cellular level. So my work now focuses on health optimization medicine as my foundation. And then on top of that foundation, I build other types of technologies and practitioners and therapies and ideas that can harness the power of a full cell, a full bank of money where you have lots of money you can invest and lots of different therapies and procedures that can cultivate and use that money for, you know, for work. If you're going and using some of these therapies, hyperbaric therapy including, and you have no money in your bank, in your cellular bank, you are going to be paying on credit, right? And you have no money to pay it back, that's gonna be a problem over the years. So my feeling is you have to think about things in context. 
every therapy, it doesn't matter what it is. Every procedure, doesn't matter what it is. You have to start with the basics. You have to start with your relationships, your food, your behavior, your, your diet, um, in the sense of you know, where did your ancestors grow up and what is best for you? And so are you uh, somebody who lived on the equator most of your ancestry? Are you somebody that lived in Siberia most of your ancestry? It matters. So all these things are really important when I'm talking to my patients. Uh, most people find me because of hyperbaric medicine, but I'd say 20 or 30% of the time, I don't even recommend it, at least not initially, because they have to really consider other avenues and other ways of, of approaching their health before hyperbaric medicine would even be helpful over the long term. Sometimes it can even make things worse if they don't have good cellular health, if they're highly inflamed and they've been inflamed for years and years, it can make them worse and I've seen it. So I'm, I'm very careful to make sure that uh, when I talk about hyperbaric medicine, it's in the context of looking at something, looking at health in a greater way, in a, in a larger perspective. Okay, thank you. Okay. You have an advice. You said about the, you spoke about food, some, something uh, simple to, some sim simple advice for us. What can we do with food and not like what to buy, but you spoke a lot of the diversity of our, we don't, mm -hmm. like the common people, if I didn't uh, go to, I, if I didn't do any, uh, I didn't examine my my genetics. So how can I know when I'm buying mm -hmm. food, if the food is good for me, what is the sign? That's a good question. And it's a very complicated question in some ways. Food is a very complicated topic for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of, there's religious parts to it. There's political parts to it. There's taste parts to it you know, those kinds of things. Um, what I often say to my patients, at least to start off with, if they don't do any more testing, is that there's a couple foods that almost, well, everybody should limit. And uh, one of those foods is, <clears throat> is any food with, pro with added sugar, number one. So anything with added sugar, that means they're not naturally producing sugar, mm -hmm. is, is going to be inflammatory, just plain and simple. And as a corollary to that is processed foods, foods that are in packages, foods that are typically five ingredients or more um, are processed. So you often find that people that decide to be vegan or decide to be carnivores or decide to go on the ketogenic diet, they all get better initially. Uh, they all feel better initially because often they're giving up a lot of the processed food and a lot of the sugar. So uh, that's sort of number one. Take out or number one and number two is, proce is processed foods and sugar, added sugar, I will have most people avoid. Um, the other one category is grains. Typically, lots of carbohydrates are not really conducive to, uh, to, to overall well-being and longevity. So low-carbohydrate diets tend to be better for most people, in, in, except in sort of in settings where there's a, a tropical environment or there's a lot of you know, natural fruit that's been eaten for generations in the summertime months, et cetera, in tropical locations. Um, so, um, but in general, it's low processed food, uh, no added sugar, uh, staying away from grains uh, for the most part. And I, I'm not a big fan of dairy, so I, I have most people avoid dairy 
um, in general because it typically tends to be inflammatory. Um, and then as far as even greater sort of higher level thinking, organic tends to be better. Organic tends to be more pesticide-free. Uh, genetically modified crops tend to have probably a more inflammatory uh, impact on our guts and our gut bacteria at the very least, if not leaching out chemicals from our, from our cells. Uh, sorry, leaching out minerals, I should say. So leaching out minerals, which we need. Um, and so I try to avoid GMOs, avoid uh, conventionally grown crops, except for a couple ones that have low pesticide residue. And then from a meat perspective, uh, and seafood recommending wild caught uh, seafood and uh, meat that's raised in its natural diet. So uh, grass fed beef and lamb and uh, pasture raised pork and if, if you eat pork and pasture raised. Uh, <laughs> I, I just wanted to say that, like you said, the beef that it's uh, like, if it a kosher beef, like a- Kosher beef? Kosher beef, yeah. Not good enough, no, not good oh? enough. It has to be grass raised, grass fed. So it has to be fed on grass. So kosher just means how it was killed. It doesn't mean what it ate, right? So yeah, remember that- No, actually this is the point. Uh, like uh, if it eats meat, other meat, it's not kosher. So maybe this is the, what I wanted to point out. Yeah, most cows aren't fed meat. They're fed grains. They're fed corn and cornmeal, soy, those kinds of things. Um, and those are not the cow's natural diet. And so if they were going to eat those and be killed in a kosher way, that would still wouldn't be good for you, is what I mean. You know, yes. um, Most animals are not fed animal products anymore. That used to be an issue about 15 or 20 years ago. And most of the feed now for animals does not contain that because of mad cow disease, um, mad cow prion disease that occurred. And it was not well tolerated by the public, <laughs> obviously. So um, anyway, so in general, grass-fed is best. Okay, thank you, Scott. It was a pleasure to, meet, to host you. Very inform informative. I'm sure the, the dream of the rising starman, ageless starman will uh, grow up after our podcast. And I hope to meet you again. One day at a time for the age yeah. of starman. We're getting there. <laughs> yes. But I don't really care about longevity. No. As much as I care about the span of health that yeah. we have during that time. So I'm very clear that health span to me is important to, is more important than lifespan. I mean, obviously, ideally both, right? But the challenge is that lifespan's increasing, but health span is going down. The amount of years we live on this planet or other planets, if we get there, where we're healthy. So um, it's an important piece to mention. Yeah. But I think we're, we're going to get there. And I'll be back at Israel, in Israel at some point, I'm sure. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I, I'll add that my, uh, my, my vision is uh, almost the same. Like, um, I say it like this, that I want people to uh, live and create their life at any, at any age as they choose to do. They yeah. Can. I like that too. Yeah. But I don't care to live another 200 years. <laughs> it's not that I, if science will allow it, I will, I will find a way to enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> That sounds good. It's a good perspective. I like it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Scott.
My pleasure, Gil. Enjoy your day. And thank you all for listening. Thank you.